Hello and welcome back to another episode of LiveWise Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest, Charlie Jamison, is the CIO of Jamison Coote Bonds and oversees the portfolio management of the Australian and global high-grade bond and dynamic alpha investment strategies. Before that, Charlie worked as a bond investor from 2001 in New York, Tokyo, London and Sydney with Merrill Lynch. Charlie has managed large government bond portfolios in key major currencies and derivative instruments. He's found himself stuck in the middle of the major financial crises of the past two decades, including September 11, the global financial crisis, the Eurozone crises, the US credit rating downgrade, and Chinese and Greek concerns also. We talk about what the recent inflation figures mean for the rate outlook, what the rate outlook means for the bond market, how Jamison Coote bonds manage their portfolios during rate hikes, and what returns investors can expect from their bond portfolios. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever I post content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Well, Charlie, welcome to Rules of Investing. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Um, it's actually perfect timing to to do this podcast. Uh, yesterday, we found out that year-on-year inflation hit 5.1%, uh, 2.1% over the first three months. Did you expect it to be this high? Not quite that high, but the market's expectation was uh, you know, 46 It's obviously come in a little higher than that. Uh, we're seeing this around the globe at the moment, aren't we, with these much higher inflation numbers? Um, I guess, you know, a lot of that is very understandable with regard to, you know, the reopenings and the huge amounts of fiscal transfers. But we're seeing just a whole bunch of dominoes fall into each other as it pertains to the inflation story. So obviously the war with Russia and Ukraine uh, gave the energy markets in particular and and soon will will be global food prices, certainly in Europe, uh, a very big push. And then right on the heels of that, we've got this lockdown in China, which is obviously um, constricting the supply uh, lines there again. So uh, it's going to remain elevated for a period, but I think it's really important to remember that inflation is a rate of change concept. And so uh, there's certainly been the, uh, you know, the the um, price uh, rises have, have been, uh, you know, jacked up in kind of price gouging, if you will, in, in many in many places. The sustainability of those price increases, we think, uh, you know, is unsustainable. And certainly as Central bankers start to destroy demand, and certainly what uh, bond markets are now pricing with regard to the amount of tightening we're going to see, it will definitely kill inflation. It will probably kill the economy as well. And so that's why in this process, the bond market's looking for these very rapid rate hikes, and then not too far after that, some rate cuts. So it's really about slamming on the brakes, and then we're going to need to give uh, the whole you know machine a little bit of accelerator. Um, so, you know, we do expect inflation will moderate and it's interesting for all the, you know, kind of inflation commentary that's on at the moment, just that rate of change, it it does need to stay incredibly elevated to maintain these numbers. So we think that it will naturally moderate. I'll give you a great example. Going into the Russia-Ukraine conflict, oil was about $95 a barrel. Obviously, it spiked immediately to 130, which is scary because it touches every facet of the economy in terms of, you know, the way that we transport things. And today, it's been back at 100. It's at 101 today as we're recording this on, on, uh, on the 28th. Um, so it really hasn't driven on all that much from the start of the conflict. Uh, and certainly if it just moderates and stays at $100 a barrel, then the inflationary impulse from oil goes to zero. 
uh, let alone if it actually ever falls. And, and, you know, we do get that demand destruction because of the way central banks are going to, to be uh, operating. So, yeah, inflation certainly a uh, cause for concern. It's making central bankers do extraordinary things right after they just did extraordinary things in terms of saving us from the crisis in 2020. They've stayed in those emergency settings for far too long. Uh, and I've clearly, you know, as the major health emergency has now passed us, it's um, we shouldn't have these emergency settings as it pertains to monetary policy. You know, they've essentially stopped quantitative easing now. Uh, and we will not get the same amounts of fiscal spending that we've seen, uh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, kind of 18, 24 months. Uh, so three of those big kind of crutches, I guess, that markets have been uh, supported by and now are being entirely removed, which is why 2022 is proving to be a pretty difficult year for investors uh, from bond markets through equity markets and a whole host of other things, ex-commodities, I guess, which has, has been doing very well. Has the RBA dropped the ball um, on this? I mean, last year, Philip Lowe said that it would be three years. Um, Were they ever until, until they, the ball? Until, <laughs> until they um, hiked, and yet here we are today. Look, the RBA... Um, it's just a completely different world. Yeah, I mean, they are... Well, Philip Lowe is the highest paid central banker in the world. Uh, I would say that to date he has not covered himself in glory. So... From comments right back to, you know, we're never going to go below 1.5% as a cash rate. Well, we got to essentially zero. We're never going to do quantitative easing. We know how that ended. We're going to hold rates at zero until 2024, 0.1%. Here we are likely hiking in May 2022. Yield curve control, we will operate in those instruments until they mature. Well, we know that was an absolute bloodbath with the way that that was handled. Um, The RBA is governed by a board of governors, Uh, And in any other kind of corporate environment, if the board enacts a policy, then it would require a board change to remove the policy. That's just standard process. Uh, With yield curve control, Governor Lowe decided not to enact yield curve control at his discretion. I wasn't aware that 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 was even possible, but apparently it is. and, uh, And there has been no real investigation as far as I can see as to the way that that was all handled. But I think, um, you know, they're both sides of politics are committed to reviewing the RBA. Uh, But yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I am sympathetic to the fact that the, you know, the Ukraine-Russian crisis wasn't in everyone's uh, estimations for this year, and it certainly changed things very quickly. Uh, But I think, you know, even without that, it was absurd to think that we'd be in 0.1% settings, uh, you know, in terms of monetary policy, all the way through to 2024. The economies uh, around the world generally got through COVID pretty well. There was obviously a tremendous amount of fiscal transfer, which helped uh, to bridge that, those economic issues at more than $20 trillion. It's no surprise that uh, you know everybody wanted the same things at the same time when they were locked at home. That was obviously a huge demand for goods and not much demand for services other than Netflix and Uber Eats. Uh, but now the economy is reopening. The demand for those goods is dissipating quite quickly. And anyone that knows much about um, you know supply lines, that there's this great kind of uh, terminology which is called the bullwhip effect, where things can go from deficit to surplus very, very quickly. And so, a classic example: a lot of my friends who run businesses, if they were getting a thirty or forty percent allocation of what they are ordering, well, invariably they order three times as much, and then they get what they need. But one day, three times as much turns up and you might not have the warehousing for it or the ability and invariably you need to discount hard to get rid of the excess. So uh, capitalism is very good at solving these issues. I think if you look at things like um, freight rates have started to collapse, notwithstanding the Chinese ports are closed down at the moment, but 
capitalism responds. So the number of uh, entities that have registered themselves as trucking businesses in the United States is up 30 or 40,000 or something like uh, of that magnitude. You can bet your bottom dollar that every rusty truck sitting in a field has been mobilized to cash in on these exorbitant freight costs, you know, and if I can make money just driving around, why wouldn't I? Because it's a lot of money to be made. Well, there's a lot of people collectively doing that all at the same time. And now freight prices are coming down very quickly. So, um, you know, again, with this inflationary kind of issue, yes, uh, you know, there's definitely been very large price rises in a number of things. Yes, there is still restricted supply in a number of things. We need to think through energy policy and these types of things in a, you know, in a very different way looking forward. Um, but, you know, we do not believe we're in a new secular inflationary world where this will be sustained on an ongoing basis, um, particularly if central banks are credible in fighting it as they are, you know, they're kind of promising to be, uh, that they will do everything in their powers by slamming on the brakes of monetary policy. Uh, we know in very indebted societies that that, you know, has a tremendous impact and, and we do not, there will be no argument to the fact that if mortgage rates go from two to five, Anybody that has a mortgage spends a lot less because a lot of their income goes on servicing those much higher you know, funding costs. And that means that every business around where we are today sells less coffee, sells less avocado toast, uh, less holidays get taken. You know, all discretionary spending is, is affected. The economy slows down and you know things heal in a, in a more brutal way. But it, it is a blunt instrument and it does work. And central banks certainly at the moment um, – Look like they're, uh, you know, they've got the stomach to to do this. Whether they maintain the resolve once we get into a negative growth environment, which is almost certain, if we are to believe that these policies will be enacted as the way that they're um, being delivered to the market uh, in terms of you know central bank speeches and the like, that's another question. So um, you know, or do central bankers then you know kind of run for the cover of you know inflation is falling, it's falling quickly. We believe we've done enough. Uh, you know, they are pretty prone to changing their tune as it suits them. Um, so, you know, at the moment, we've got extraordinary things priced for some of these markets. I think, you know, as we sit here in Australia today, the bond market is pricing the RBA to hike rates higher than the US Federal Reserve. Now, that's extraordinary, but it's very real. Uh, it kind of speaks to the size of the sell-off, which we've seen in terms of Australian bond yields. It speaks to the incredibly poor handling by the RBA of the yield curve control moment and a lot of international investors having their fingers badly burnt in that process and they won't come back and invest here. It means that every Australian citizen listening to this podcast is now facing higher funding costs on our national debt because we have pushed those investors out of the market and that's not a good thing as an Australian citizen. Um, so there is a real cost to bear here and obviously we do have a very large debt burden that requires constant financing. We have been in structural deficit for a very long time uh, and we will continue to be in structural deficit for a long time. So we're very contingent on financing the country's needs you know, via borrowing money. We, we spend more than we earn as a country. So those interest rates do matter and, uh, and this is where you know, the poor handling by the central bank uh, really does need investigation because it's um, – you know, look, bond markets around the world have sold off but Australia has sold off so much more than others – uh, and it's not really justified uh, in terms of the, the fundamental that we see. We don't have uh, the inflation issues that others have got. We've certainly got our own inflation issues, but we don't have 9% inflation like the US. And we don't have the wage inflation story either. And, and you know, part of the reason for that is that in COVID, a lot of US workers were simply fired 
and then rehired as the economies reopened. Whereas here, clearly, people were, you know, put uh, on ice via the JobKeeper program. They didn't have to reapply for their job once, uh, you know, we we did reopen, and so we just haven't had that wage push in the same way. Now, that's not to say that wages aren't rising; they are, and I think um, you know you will see more uh, talk of that uh, in time, particularly as some of these, um, you know, accords get, uh, you know, reset and the like. Uh, but we just don't face the same issues as some of these other uh, nations with regard to you know how much we need to do to address the imbalances, uh, and yet the bond market's saying that we're going to do more than others. So there is a bit of a, a discourse in that. How culpable are central banks um, for the inflation we see today with all the QE, um, all the helicopter money and liquidity they've pumped into the economy? Um, I mean, if, if blame is to, to go anywhere, is it the central banks? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, in part, absolutely. I mean, it's a very complex uh, ecosystem, as you can imagine, uh, and it really was the combination of those fiscal transfers combined with the most extraordinary monetary policy, uh, you know, we've ever seen. Um, but they've left us in this emergency state for far too long, and clearly, you know, once the uh, economic emergency was passed, and that really, for most of, of Australia per se, was just really March and April of 2020, and then, yeah, here in Victoria, we were locked down for a long time thereafter, um, but plenty of other parts of the country were not, and yet we had these extraordinary settings, you know, and we still have them as we sit here right now. Uh, and so that is, you know, uh, a problem and, and certainly has um, heightened the inflationary environment uh, as a result. Uh, but it is complex. Obviously, you know, the global supply chains have been, uh, you know, all over the place with regard to, you know, shutdowns, reopenings, shutdowns and the like. Um, I think, you know, clearly there'll be plenty of supply managers that will no longer have a 95% supply line straight to China, and that will change. But the whole talk of total deglobalization is a little bit premature. It's, uh, I don't think we'll be making everything right around the corner uh, just yet. But you know, clearly, we'll be looking for differing supply sources and making sure that that's managed in a better way uh, so that we don't have that singular reliance. And I think given what's going on with global conflict at the moment too, you know, there needs to be a, a, a you know, much greater reassessment of, you know, what are these supply lines really look like for us? You know, for instance, um, you know, until recently, uh, you know, Australia has only one um, petrol um, oil refinery uh, capability. I know the government's committed to more. Uh, but, you know, in terms of things like our strategic fuel reserves, we've only got 45 days of fuel. So on the 46th day, you can't harvest crops. That's absurd. You know, I mean, if the first thing you do if you want to have conflict with Australia is you bomb that refinery and see you later. We'll see you guys in 46 days. So we just don't have those strategic reserves. Well, it's just, you know, these things have just not been well managed mm -hmm. and well planned. Uh, and now, of course, you know, as the tide's gone out rapidly and everybody is thinking through what would I actually do if I have to fend for myself, we're in an incredible position here where we have pretty much everything that we need. So we've got to set it upright uh, and make sure that that is sustainable, you know, over the medium term. I think, um, you know, clearly, uh, as you know, others have found, uh, you can't be entirely reliant upon those uh, what are currently friendly neighbours who might not be so friendly, you know, in, in, uh, in future times. Look at Germany, for instance, with regard to their energy uh, needs coming straight through from Russia and, and, you know, that incredible reliance that they have on Russian gas. Um, so, you know, these issues are, are all being kind of debated and, and, you know, furiously at the moment. Um, and, of course, you know, as those capabilities are being, uh, you know, engineered, yeah, it changes the global inflationary environment a little bit. 
No longer can we get everything globally sourced at the lowest possible uh, point of the, of the production global in, the, in terms of the global cycle. Um, but it, I don't think it means that we're re-onshoring absolutely everything either. It just means that we do need to do a bit more planning and, and, uh, and clearly balance that in a better way. So you think globalisation has well and truly peaked and uh, countries are going to be much more economically isolated moving forward? Uh, look, I think, I mean, I don't know that it's a peak and then it needs to necessarily fall away tremendously. But yeah, uh, to some degree, globalisation probably has peaked. And um, and just, you know, sourcing things from the lowest possible producer is no longer security viable. So uh, in, in that regard, yeah, it has. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, it goes from one to zero. It's not binary. It's not over, mm-hmm. but it's changing. Uh, and, you know, clearly that can generate more inflation. You know, we know that globalisation and, and the importation of, you know, very low-cost product and low-cost labour, uh, you know, pushed pricing down and, and certainly, you know, with a whole bunch of other things in the secular world, you know, very high debt burdens, um, you know, demography and these types of things, uh, it was a, a fairly low inflationary kind of period. Now, I guess don't forget that, you know, after these enormous run-ups in inflation, as I said, unless those prices continue to increase at the same rates, then inflation headline numbers will fall. So what the markets are really searching around for now is what do they fall to? They're not staying at nine in the US. So are they going to go to four or five? You know, the central banks want to see them back at two to three. They're not going to get there in in any kind of um, specified time frame over this year. But, you know, if we get a situation where oil, for instance, is making some really interesting chart patterns at the moment, it's either going to re-accelerate to higher prices or it's very likely going to fall back towards about $80 a barrel. Um, if that is to be the case, you know, some of these things that have already been running really hot uh, in, you know, in last year, if we think about US inflation, the single largest driver of uh, US inflation was used car prices. They were up 40.5% year on year. So far this year, they went flat in January. They were minus 2.2% in February. They were minus 3.6 or 3.7, I think, from memory in March. And they're down again at the start of April. Now, that is rational. Of course, you know, when COVID was terrifying, you didn't want to jump on the train or the bus. Um, Having an old used car and driving yourself was a good way to protect yourself. All of a sudden, now gasoline price is very high and used car prices up 40.5%. Not everybody wants, you know, a rusty old used car. Uh, and prices are moderating. And, and clearly, you know, up until, I guess, China had been frustrated, supply had been increasing and, and those types of things. We'd been building a lot of new cars again. Um, so that kind of thing does take a lot of the, the, you know, the tailwind out of those kind of inflationary stories. But, um, you know, it has been fairly broad-based, I think, um, you know, there's an old saying, I guess, in the markets that nothing kills high prices like high prices. So, you know, I think after we've all been locked on our couch and everyone's experienced some version of this with lockdown, you know, you'll pay anything to go to a restaurant and have a meal and a, and a drink and, and the restaurant, you know, responds by putting its prices up and you'll accept that to a point. If they put them up every week, at some stage you stay home and have tomato pasta, you know, <laughs> and you're back on Netflix because... Uh, you know, it's not sustainable. So, you know, whilst everyone has used this opportunity to to drive prices higher and, and you know, getting a lot of these kind of one-off increases, um, the sustainability of that, uh, particularly, you know, and there was a, a, obviously a, 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 an issue with regard to the borders being closed and us not being able to receive 
you know, all of the student labour, for instance, that you know had done a lot of those um, lower paid tasks. Um, you know, clearly with the borders now reopening, you know, the labour force is normalising uh, to look you know more like it did in 2019. So a lot of that sting does start to dissipate, um, but the rate at which it dissipates and we get back to a more stabilised inflationary regime is. Um, is you know really what the markets are debating, and there's almost no question that it's not going to be a smooth transfer. This is, you know, these volatilities in this economic data series are going to remain for quite some time. Uh, you've only got to look at you know China locking down and the disruption to the supply chain there again, uh, which is just going to give us this uh, you know stop-start type of, of data flow, and we're not going to get to trend for a little while longer. Yeah, I've just moved house recently, and I moved and then found out that there's a two-month wait on beds. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how was the floor going for you then? <laughs> uh, I found a, sol- um, a solution for the interim. Now, um, the yield curve inverted much earlier, um, this tightening cycle. Um, what does that tell us about the tra- trajectory for rates? Are we in for a, for a harsher but shorter bear market this time around? So yield curve inversion has been the precursor to every recession except 1967. Uh, where there was an inversion which didn't uh, follow on to become recessionary, it inverted in uh, you know before the the, 20, the recession of 2020, which was obviously incredibly short. How the hell did it see COVID? Well, of course it didn't. But uh, the the markets were slowing already. If you remember at that time, we'd had um, you know we'd got to two and a half percent Fed funds uh, in the fourth quarter of 2018. The bond market had a, a large sell-off uh, in October of that year. Credit markets completely froze in November 2018, and there was no debt capital markets issuance globally in high-yield bonds in November. Now, that's not people trying to borrow new money. That's people that also need to refinance existing obligations. So, you know, those bonds are they're like a mortgage that need to be raised every few years. You don't get 30-year debt, uh, you know, if you're a high-yield corporate um, so that clearly, you know, is the the real, you know, financial oil of the economic machine. Uh, and when, you know, you think about, um, you know, the Russell 3000, for instance, you know, 20% of its members essentially are zombie corporations. They are completely contingent on debt capital market financing to exist. Uh, and so once you get those blockages, then it becomes chaotic. And we had a, you know, 20% drawdown in equities uh, in December 2018. That took the Federal Reserve from being in hiking mode to patient on the 4th of January 2019, so that big shift in policy, and they were cutting rates again uh, pretty much at the insistence of Trump by July of 2019. But the economy wasn't going great, and that's why we'd essentially seen those inversions. This time around, uh, you know, it's extraordinary how fast things have evolved. Um, the speed of this has just been absolutely unprecedented. In the rate hiking cycle of 20, uh, 2004 to 2006, the curve didn't invert, I think, until the 15th rate hike. The 15th. The 15th. It's already inverted. Right? In 2015, it was very slow. So we had one rate hike in 15, one in 16, three in 17, and four in 18. The curve inverted after the ninth rate hike. This time around... We inverted 13 days after the first rate hike. So this is utterly extraordinary. And essentially, you know, we've priced in what is a full rate hiking cycle. And, and you know, the estimations here, as we sit here today, the estimations for one-year rates in the United States is to be at 3%. We're at 50 basis points today. So another 2.5% of tightening. Uh, in one year's time, the estimations for Australian interest rates is nearly 3.2% higher than that of the US. 
So, you know, we're talking about 13 or 14 traditional 25 basis point rate hikes. For most people, and I mean, we haven't had a rate hike here for more than 10 years, there's a hell of a lot of people with a mortgage that have never even experienced having to pay more. They've very much enjoyed having to pay less, and they've spent the difference in the economy, and it's been very virtuous. Uh, but it works perfectly uh, in, in reverse, and it does generate a bit of a downward spiral. Uh, and so if we are to realise these things, I don't think a lot of people will argue with me that you know clearly the economy changes very quickly, housing changes very quickly, construction changes very quickly. You're going to build something to be delivered into a market that could be 20 30 40% lower on delivery? No. Um, is everybody employed in the same way? No. You know, so... It's hard. Of course, it's possible. Is it probable? No. And so, you know, will these forwards be realised or are they very generous? I would say they're very generous. But again, until we get more, um, you know, certainty with with which how will the inflation uh, environment settle down, I think it's rational that, that, you know, bond markets are kind of asking these questions at the moment. Um, And I kind of remind folks that, you know, bonds, uh, particularly government bonds, are the locomotive at the front of a big train of assets. And invariably where they go, a lot of other things will be taken. So that worked beautifully as rates went from, you know, 15% to essentially zero. And uh, as the discount rate or the funding rate on thousands of things, they enjoyed, you know, vast, uh, you know, revaluations to higher prices. uh, And everybody very much enjoyed that. Uh, but sadly, it does work in reverse. And so uh, as these markets uh, have now risen in yield, um, you know, again, that does uh, bring into question, you know, what are the discount rate assumptions that are used in a lot of these private assets, in real estate, uh, in equity market, um, you know, discount uh, rates and the like. So uh, it does set up for a difficult environment. But the thing that actually brings it all together is the credit markets. And so as I said earlier, with that freezing of the credit markets in November 2018, it's very difficult to ascertain when the markets will lose confidence in some particular names in credit, but when it does, it becomes very infectious. Um, and so, you know, clearly that moment is ahead of us still because the refunding burdens become just simply too much. And for those that are on the weaker end of, uh, you know, the credit markets, uh, you know, when we get these much, much higher realised interest rates and they go to refinance, it's just a bridge too far. Uh, and then, Clearly, um, that becomes a pretty volatile moment. And as we know, when credit does uh, underperform, uh, it tends to happen in a very chaotic way. And it's a real kind of crescendo moment. It's not an orderly process that, you know, credit spreads just widen bit by bit by bit. And it's important to think about what is a credit spread? So, you know, and and, and why do they behave in this way? If you think about an Australian government bond that yields 5% and a BHP bond that yields 55 well, then that's the market ascribing a 10% premium to the difference between a government uh, guarantee and a corporate guarantee. If the government bond goes to 1%, that spread doesn't stay at 50. It obviously tightens to reflect the much lower yield of the government bond. Uh, and it might, you know, ideally it would tighten in that perfect ratio, but it doesn't always work like that. It does work in reverse, though. If the government bond goes from one to five, as we've basically experienced with a lot of bonds have have risen in yield quite uh, considerably lately, then those credit spreads do need to widen to re-establish that correct amount of credit premium. And then, as I said, sadly, when there are problems in that universe, uh, it's it's kind of death by association for a lot of for a lot of product, which is sad, uh, and they don't tend to be very liquid at that point. And that's where a lot of people get jammed up with, um, you know, trying to build out, I guess, defensive sleeves in their in their portfolios. 
Um, obviously, I'm a, a government bond manager and I try not to criticise credit too much because it's a great product and it should absolutely be utilised at the right points in the cycle. Uh, but it does have a tendency to behave a bit like equities at those real stress points. And you've only got to look back to you know, what happened in, in March and April of 2020 or what happened at the end of 2018 to see that the proof is absolutely in the pudding with regard to the way those things perform. And that's why I guess what we do is important because it does have that liquidity component tree that allows portfolios to have that optionality at that time. And it's I kind of remind people that there's not much point having a mobile phone with no batteries or a gun with no bullets. Um, in those moments of real market stress, you've got to be able to get to the things that you want to to liquefy in order to capture, you know, your favourite growth assets that might be deeply discounted at that point. You know, we had uh, equities down what thirty or forty percent at the start of twenty twenty, and, and and that was just a total gift in some of these really good, strong corporations, and and you know they've rallied all the way back and then some since that time. Uh, and so it's that dynamic asset allocation, which, you know, obviously we're interested in talking to folks about, uh, making sure that they've got the right tools at their disposal to be able to, to, you know, achieve the things that they want to achieve in those moments. If this situation uh, goes completely sideways, um, how, how possible is it for, for credit markets to freeze up? I mean, are we heading down that road? Well, it's happened twice in the last four years. I dare say that this one's um, pretty pretty certain at some point if we continue on uh, you know hiking rates the way that um, central banks are suggesting that we will uh, I'd say that that's pretty probable that we will have a moment I mean what tends to happen in rate hiking cycles is that we hike rates until something breaks and then when it breaks we apologize profusely and, and say I'm so terribly sorry and we'll change policy to be far more supportive and accommodative and then in providing that policy stimulation, uh, it dampens the volatility, which allows people to get invested again and the market stabilise and then they start to heal and there's value everywhere. Now, that is the point at which credit does look very attractive as an asset class uh, once you get those snap widenings, but you just don't want to get caught up with it as it's repricing to that point. Um, I think, I mean, it's an interesting one. There's a lot of uh, publicly available um, uh, you know, literature on this that's been done by, you know, kind of academic sources. Essentially, there's a fantastic one by the Norges Bank, which was written, I think, in 2016 or 17. And the reason it's very publicly available is when they change their asset allocation, it's got to be tabled through Parliament. The Norges Bank, uh, obviously, is a, a trillion-dollar investor. Uh, thank you very much for, for all those, um, you know, oil uh, revenues, and, and they are obviously a very sophisticated institution. And they wrote a paper looking at asset allocation to say that if you only owned government bonds, of course you should own lots of corporate bonds. You do get a higher yield and that makes perfect sense. But if you also own a lot of equities, actually what you're supposed to do is downweight your corporate allocation, upweight your equity allocation, and then barbell that by owning some more very liquid sovereign bonds of very particular nations. So you don't own any of the kind of more peripheral sovereigns. Uh, you just really focus in on you know best in breed. And that's an interesting way to look at things. I guess, um, you know, people often ask us about corporate credit and, and, you know, our thoughts and how much should we hold. And when we're thinking about our fixed in income allocation, you know, how do we kind of balance that through sovereign, through credit, through high yield, um, you know, and all these other types of products, whether we use linkers or do we use floating rates and all of these wonderful things that are available. Of course, there's been a huge rise in private debt, uh, which is fantastic because it never gets marked to market. So it has very little volatility until it does. Um, so there's all of these wonderful instruments that people can now use to solve their own uh, investment uh, needs. 
Uh, and that's a fantastic thing. And I guess that's you know been the evolution of the growth in the fixed income marketplace since we were running structural surpluses back in the Howard and Costello days, where we almost didn't even have a government bond market and we almost had no outstanding government debt. Uh, but we fast forward to today, and, and clearly, you know, we've got more, you know, more than a trillion dollars if you combine up the federal and state, um, you know, kind of debt, uh, you know, needs, and and it looks like we're going to continue to have that structural budget deficit for quite some time. So, as a bond manager, um, what are your return expectations as we move through these? Very uncertain times. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Obviously, um, you know the markets have been moving at an unprecedented rate uh, this year. It's been the worst performance for for bonds since then uh, the year of nineteen eighty. Uh, and to say it's been the worst performance, it's been about twice as bad as that year was, uh, and that's only year to date. So, the, you know, the, the sell-off has been extraordinary, and that's why we do worry for a lot of other things, you know, further on down the line. Now, this is all kind of financialized uh, to this point. It hasn't really hit Wall Street. It's hit Wall Street, but it hasn't really hit Main Street per se. Uh, but as I said, when the Federal Reserve hike interest rates very aggressively at the next few meetings, get us close to a 2% Fed funds rate by... Um, the kind of summer break, so say, um, you know, July, uh, clearly the RBA have got a lot to do and it looks like they're going to need to move a little faster, um, then, you know, it does become much more real uh, as you open up your mortgage statements and realise that you've got to pay more to, to fund those uh, borrowings that you do have. What we've kind of can, can tell you is that, you know, at the uh, end of every rate hiking cycle, uh, whatever the terminal rate is, so whatever we get to, whether that's two and a half or three or three and a half percent, the 10-year US Treasury yield tends to be at or below that rate. And so what happens as we're hiking, obviously, short-dated bond yields are rising. But in doing that and, and hiking and dealing with inflation expectation, longer dated bonds say, well, actually, if you're going to take inflation seriously, well, then that's a good thing. And then as growth starts to slow, they start to perform quite well. So we've already got pretty elevated yields, uh, certainly from where we've come from. We've got you know treasuries pretty close to 3%. Uh, Aussie ten-year bonds are over three percent. They're you know kind of three, three, and nearly three and a quarter, three point two, uh, and so it's very unlikely that they will go materially beyond that, unless we're going to hike you know central bank policies to to those kind of levels. We think the economy will have you know, not collapsed, but it'll be doing very poorly if that was to occur. Uh, that deals with the inflation issue very quickly by destroying demand. Uh, and it's probably unlikely they would realise, you know, the full, um, you know, gravity of that. Now, of course, if Australian RBA cash rates get to three and a half, that means mortgages are at six. That's a hell of a way from two, where a lot of people have been enjoying them. Um, I just saw you wiggle in your chair a little bit. I think you might be a mortgage holder, as am I. Um, so, you know, clearly, and, and that just, it's going to change discretionary spending. And as we, no one will argue with what happens to the economy under, under that kind of uh, outcome. So it's about how much demand destruction do we need to pass on to, to the markets uh, in order to get this inflation, um, you know, problem to, to abate. It is a supply side, predominantly inflation issue. So dealing with it via demand is not a perfect way to, to, to deal with it. Uh, but what does that mean for bond market returns? From here on, they actually should be a, a lot better. I mean, they've been terrible. Uh, but for instance, you can own bonds. They've got so much income in them now in terms of their yields uh, that they are very investable through time. So just to give you an example, 
at the moment, uh, you know, U.S. Treasuries yield uh, short-dated U.S. Treasuries, so two-year bonds, which is a very popular kind of maturity that people would invest in. It's something that banks and insurers will invest in. If you buy a two-year bond at around about 2.5%, you can own that bond to almost 4% by the end of the year without losing any money. So the, clearly the income component tree is so powerful for the balance of the year uh, that uh, even if the bond yield is to continue to rise, obviously you're having some capital slippage on the value of the bond at that time, but the income is so powerful that they negate each other. Now, obviously, if you hold the bond until it matures, you make 2.5%. So um, you know, we are starting to see a lot more interest uh, in, in the bond market now that yields have risen. People have been very, very underallocated, and that's been the correct call. Uh, obviously, bonds did a fantastic job of providing that liquidity and performance as we went into COVID, um, and government bonds were one of the only things that were really functioning at that time. And it meant that folks could go and buy, you know, equities down forty percent, saying goodbye to bonds at a, at a, you know, at a gain. Um, and they haven't held those allocations really since that time. And we are seeing a lot of investors coming back and rebuilding those allocations now. I think an expectation that, you know, the, the market's repriced enough and it's uh, very investable. I think they're also concerned that if we are to enact these very restrictive monetary policies, then we will have a recession. And I think that's, um, you know, now very widely discussed that we'll almost certainly have a recession uh, at the latter part of this year or early next year globally. Will it be mild or will it be severe? Uh, that's the source for great debate. It really depends on how much stomach do these central bankers have to continue to fight inflation if we have negative growth. And that's a much more challenging thing to do. It's easy to hike rates when everything's booming and everything's running red hot and employment's you know, sub 4%. It's a lot harder to do it when you know, things are moving in the other direction. You know, people are screaming for jobs and, uh, and you know, it's a lot harder out there. Uh, and you clearly you know, need a lot more stomach to, to carry on and, and really kind of um, smash that inflation uh, you know, bug with a very big hammer of, of monetary policy at that point. So how do you, in a portfolio, when you're constructing a portfolio, how do you um, balance the mix of short-dated and long-dated bonds as rates change and as um, growth forecasts change? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess, um, you know, obviously bonds, uh, you know, you can buy very short dated bonds that have only got a few months until they mature all the way through in Australia to 30 year bonds. Um and, you know, those bonds will perform differently at different points in that cycle. So as we said, you know, coming leading into uh, these rate hiking cycles, the markets do tend to sell off. But from there on, the term structure. So what we're talking about there is the, the um, you know, when you sit down to Economics 101, obviously, if you're lending money for a longer time, you expect a higher yield or a higher rate of return to compensate you for the extra time that you and the extra uncertainty that you have over that time frame. So you generally get a positively sloping curve. So that's to say that, you know, two or three year bonds might yield 2%. Then you might expect that, uh, you know, 10 and 30 year bonds would yield three or three and a half. And that's what we talk about the term structure being 100 basis points steep, the difference between that 3% rate at the 10 year and that 2% rate uh, in the shorter dates at the two or the three year point. Depending on where we are in the cycle, certainly, you know, once we've started to hike interest rates, um, you do then probably want to own longer dated bonds because central bankers are dealing with that inflation expectation. Clearly, they sell off early because there is 
rising inflation expectation and they need to compensate to get to higher yields uh, to compensate investors for that you know higher inflationary expectation outcome but one central bankers you know d- deliver and they you know stay credible to fighting those inflation expectations you do want to be uh, you know allocated at those longer points and so you know that's when we talk about the curve flattening and to your point uh, we did get to that curve inversion earlier uh, you know in, in the month um, in the United States, which has been the precursor to, to you know, those in recessionary environments. The shorter dated parts of the curve clearly very um, you know, responsive to the central bank uh, cash rate, and, and they really are the funding rates in anything that's floating or short-term, any variable uh, mortgage rates and, and those types of things. Uh, and so they're going to still be under sufferance for a little while longer whilst central bankers are completing on this process. But their total return, as I said, is um, you know a lot slighter than the longer dated instruments. So, and that's why we're very comfortable that the vast majority of any sell-off that we're going to experience has now occurred, uh, because it doesn't really matter what happens to one-year bonds. As I said in that in- illustration with the two-year bond in, in the United States, you can buy them today at two and a half percent. They could yield four at the end of the year, so they could carry on to sell off another 150 basis points. And from a total return point of view, you wouldn't lose much money. You actually might even gain a little bit. Now, uh, you know, that we couldn't get anywhere near those kind of levels before we had a credit event last time around. I dare say the world is uh, even more uncertain uh, this time around, given everything that's transpired. So, yes, whilst it's possible we could get to 4% rates, is it probable? I don't think so. I think, you know, in the second and third derivative, a lot of things have changed markedly before that can happen. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens to those shorter dated rates. We're clearly, those much longer dated bonds, the 10-year bonds and the 30-year bonds, they have a, a much higher um, you know, sensitivity to change in terms of their own yields, in terms of the way that the bond value will change. But generally, once we start hiking, uh, they become very stable, if not actually perform a little bit. Uh, historically, you either want to buy them at and around the first hike or certainly within kind of six months of the first hike. They don't really tend to sell off a lot more than there unless we have a real stop-start hiking cycle. And, you know, that, that is possible as well. But generally, we've had, you know, a cycle which completes in one direction, it ceases, and then invariably because it's damaged the economy in the process, they have to start cutting rates and bonds obviously then, uh, you know, perform incredibly well, as a lot of assets do. They enjoy lower funding costs and, uh, and you know, we've all experienced that over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, you've only got to look at somebody that bought a house 30 years ago and they've made more money by going to sleep in it than they have by going to work. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary thing, but those falling long-dated interest rates have just lifted, you know, that rising tide has lifted every asset, uh, but it does work in reverse, sadly, and we're going through that in 2022. So, Charlie, given where we are today, why should investors uh, think about active bond funds versus passive? Yeah, look, I think um, this is, again, a a very contentious topic at all times. Um, Look, active bond funds, clearly, you know, they need to generate uh, outperformance over time. Uh, You also want to kind of consider things like um, liquidity. So, for instance, in the you know the March 2020 experience, a lot of the passive funds put enormous buy sell spreads on their products because liquidity was obviously challenged in the markets, uh, and so most of those funds it was you know upwards of a hundred basis points just to transact in and out of the fund. Uh, whereas good active managers should should be able to navigate that. We didn't change our buy sell spreads. I think we were one of the only ones uh, at that time, uh, and weren't certainly weren't trying to you know penalise investors for needing access to their money. Um, that's absolutely what you've got to be. I mean, if you're a defensive asset, you have to be liquid at that point. 
The other thing that's interesting, you know, just in the way that funds are offered is that a lot of funds commingle sovereign government bond assets with corporate credit assets. And when the markets come under strain and we get that lock up in credit, the entire fund structure is put uh, you know, at risk. And so, you know, again, we, we like to remind folks that segregating these different risk silos is quite important so that you can specifically target the, uh, the allocation uh, and the outcomes that you're looking for. But yeah, I guess, um, you know, for our own funds, uh, you know, we have thankfully generated a lot of additional return uh, and been able to offer, um, you know, those kind of, of moments for investors in March 2020 when they needed their money. Money. For our own funds, we uh, had to provide about $1.3 billion in a matter of days. And the markets were very strained. You know, it, it credit had completely seized. Equities were down 30 or 35%, something at the time. Um, bond markets were still functioning, but they weren't functioning at all like normal. But they were still functioning. And, you know, in the same way that they functioned through the GFC and through September 11 and through all these other chaotic events in history. Uh, assuming the settlement system is open, they stay open and they do function. And that's part of their appeal. That even on the darkest days, you can still get access to uh, to, to you know to your um, defensive assets and and have choices about how you might want to change your portfolios at that time. So, yeah, active managers, uh, you know, I think they've got a role to play. Um, obviously, what we're going through at the moment is a tough environment for everybody, and there's some pretty crazy things happening. I think uh, you know the fact that Australia is expecting more rate hikes than the United States is a classic example. I mean, that is just very unlikely to occur. I don't know anyone that really hand on heart believes the RBA will out hike the Federal Reserve, uh, but yet here we are. So um, you know that that does make it challenging at times to be an active manager. And I think, you know, as an active manager, you've got to know when to take uh, excess risk and, and, you know, and that it's justified to try and make excess return. But you also need to how to control that risk. And, and if it's obviously uh, a risk which is, um, you know, very uh, binary in nature, then we'd probably just avoid it and, you know, we'd dial the risk taking down and wait till we've got, you know, much higher conviction that we can add some value and, uh, and generate excess return. Digging a bit more into into thinking around your funds, um, JCB has an absolute return fund. Um, how how do you treat that fund differently um, to your benchmark aware funds? Well, it's all run off exactly the same process. So we, we only use you know sovereign uh, government securities, but obviously uh, you know with the uh, index relative funds, they always hold bond allocations, uh, even in years like this where it's been painful. Um, but you hold them because you never know when a plane's going to fly into a building in New York or there's going to be a nuclear accident in Japan or you know something unexpected is going to occur and at that moment you want to make sure that you've got something that zigs when everything else zags. Uh, with an absolute return fund, obviously, it's mainly about volatility targeting. So we're trying to offer a very low volatility solution to grind forward to obviously uh, you know generate stomachable uh, and acceptable returns through time. And so we don't run that you know kind of standing duration load that the other ins that the other the fund offerings would have. Um, clearly, you know, it should mean that it can have a much shorter investable window. You know, we would uh, absolutely say that with the index relative funds, uh, if you look at the course of bond returns over time, they become very self-correcting. So uh, actually, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, wrote a fantastic piece after Brexit in 2016, which I'd make available to anybody that uh, wants to, to, to kind of look at it. Uh, and it, what it tried to show was what happened. To, what would happen to bond market returns if yields were to rise in exactly the same way that they fell for the following 30 years? And everybody immediately, without thinking it through, goes, oh, bloodbath, it'll be a disgrace, it'll be terrible. 
Uh, and of course, that's absolutely incorrect because this is an income product. And as the incomes rise, it becomes very self-reinforcing. So the actual outcome for Australian government bonds over that 30-year period, if interest rates were to rise the same way that they fell, is a total return of 677%, which is extraordinary. But at some stage, you get to 15% interest rates, which doesn't matter if bonds sell off a bit, you know, it's still making a 12 or 13% return and compounding away on itself, you know, year after year. Um, so, you know, with the index relative funds, obviously the investable horizon is suggested to be a little bit longer. Absolute return can be used to either dial down exposure. People have used it in substitution for term deposits because obviously term deposit rates have been very low. Uh, or they just like the fact that it's a really liquid fund offering. A lot of these absolute return funds do utilise a lot of corporate credit, uh, a lot of low quality credit or a lot of illiquid product. Mm -hmm. And they're all fantastic assets in a benign environment, but obviously in an environment where we are subject to more stress and strain, and I think 2022 is absolutely that year, um, then you know they can be not fit for purpose in terms of being defensive right at that time when you might need to utilise them. Charlie, a lot of this talk is very uh, doom and gloom. Um, how bad is it going to get? Like, is the music going to stop? Look, I'm sorry that it, that it is. I mean, un unfortunately, 2022 is a difficult year. I mean, when we're withdrawing policy, it's not an easy time for markets. But investors should be uh, comforted, I guess, by the fact that the expectations of the markets are that inflation will be dealt with and that as much as we do need to hit the brakes to crush that inflation expectation at this point, thereafter the accelerator will come a little bit and things will normalise. And I don't think people should lose sight of that. But it is expected to be a volatile environment. And so for those that are dynamic asset allocators or active asset allocators, uh, there's going to be lots of twists and turns that they can potentially monetize. For those that aren't, I guess it's diversification is always, uh, you know, the blessing. It uh, means that, you know, you've kind of got an each way bet for every outcome. Uh, but, uh, you know, and there's plenty of folks that like to have very concentrated positions at times and think they can, can read that and get all those twists and turns correct. Uh, but I think that, yeah, investors should probably be absolutely soothed by the fact that uh, we don't expect rates are going back to 15% anytime soon. Uh, and as much as they need to go higher in order to deal with this moment, uh, they're very likely to come down again thereafter. Uh, and that's a good thing because for material credit delinquency, you need price and time. So everybody, you know, it would, it would be ordinary if you woke up to a 5% mortgage payment when you'd been paying two. But if it only happens uh, you know, for a few months, then you can deal with it. It hurts. It stops you from having fun for a little while. But then if it goes back to two, it's fine. If it stays at five for year after year after year, that has a very different impact on the way you behave in the economy, the way that the economy behaves. So as much as they're going to go up, they're very likely to come down thereafter. Hopefully, it all happens fairly quickly. And this inflation issue is dealt with and does moderate, uh, as many market participants do expect. Uh, and we don't have to go through the full, uh, you know, gravity of, of essentially what some of these bond markets are pricing in at the moment. Uh, but they are pricing in extraordinarily large moves. That is already in the current price. Um, now it's up to, you know, that realisation phase because everything that's happened has only been on expectation only at this point. Uh, but we are getting to that realisation phase. We start next week with the RBA and the Federal Reserve um, and as the rubber meets the road, you know, we'll, we'll know a lot more about that and how it impacts the economy 
and how it changes the inflation in the construct fairly quickly thereafter. So yeah, I don't, uh, it's not all doom and gloom, but certainly uh, you know, the way that things are lined up at the moment, it is a dangerous setup uh, and investors need to think that through and, and work out if they're positioned appropriately for what they uh, you know, are expecting over the next little while. Uh, and if they're not, then they probably need to make some changes to be able to you know, ride those volatilities a bit better uh, and you know, make sure they can still sleep at night. Um, now, just to finish up with Charlie, we have a couple of fun questions we always like to ask our guests. Um, the first one being, um, what book has been most influential uh, on your investment journey? Uh, it would probably be Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, which is mainly about price action. Uh, it's an old book, and I read it a long, long time ago, but um, I am a big believer in price action and that uh, you know markets don't always necessarily follow the fundamentals. I guess... Um, you look at yesterday's CPI release in Australia, initially the bond market rallied very hard out of that. Uh, and that's just to kind of say, well, yes, since CPI is high, should that be bad for bonds? Yes, of course it is. But it was all in the price already. Uh, and so, you know, similar to an equity that's expecting bad earnings, often you'll get the realisation of those bad earnings and the equity price will rally. So uh, I do believe that the price action is very important. I guess, you know, with the, the performance of the bond market over the last few weeks, it does feel like it's finding its new levels and we're not um, having those accelerated moves to higher yields uh, that we've experienced for much of this year. Uh, we do have an awful lot, I guess, priced into the market. As I said earlier, we've got essentially full hiking cycles now priced to levels far beyond uh, that, you know, broke the markets last time round. So um, does that look uh, overly generous? Yeah, arguably, yes, absolutely. Is this time different? Of course it is. We're not, you know, inflation and facing... Um, these inflation issues uh, that you know will require something quite uh, significant in order to deal with them. But yeah, that book was um, was amazing. It's a great read. It's it's an older book, but uh, nevertheless, it's uh, it's a good good read for for the sun lounger if you get a chance. So the next question, you can be a bit brave here, or you can uh, go the safe uh, route. Tell us about your biggest gain or loss, um, and and what were the takeaways from it. Uh, well, uh, people always want to hear about the train wrecks, I guess. So um, back in the Fukushima nuclear accident, uh, I had a very big loss. I um, was working in London at the time uh, and uh, a client that I was working for put me into an enormous position. We used to do a lot of block trading. So, you know, you'd put take on really substantially large positions and work out of them on behalf of a client uh, over time. Um, and... Uh, I remember we were having a very, very tough day with regard to P&L, which is allowable in what I used to do. Um, and it's obviously par for the course if you are going to take risk at times. Um, and you realise that you work in these extraordinary environments. And I yelled out over the hoot, does anybody here have a nuclear physics degree? And three people came to the desk and said, I actually do. And we had a very fast discussion about whether the core of that uh, Fukushima plant would likely melt and how vast would this nuclear accident be. And we decided that we'd hold that position and it ended up coming back okay for us. But it was a very large loss at one point. So that um, certainly took a few years off the back end of my life at the time. <laughs> uh, and I was pretty certain I would be in a glass office having to explain myself to management. Uh, but <laughs> thankfully, uh, by virtue of working with a bunch of really special people at that time, uh, we managed to get through it. So it was, a, it was an interesting one. Um, and just finally, Charlie, you forged your career um, as a born investor in 2001, um, working in the States in New York uh, with Merrill. Um, since then, uh, what have been the highlights? 
Uh, well, 2001 was obviously a pretty substantial low line. I'd just moved from New York to London uh, just before September 11th. Uh, so it was uh, the day I'll, I'll kind of never forget. So you, um, you were there as the towers came down? No, I was in London, but I had been in New York prior to that. Um, look, there's been a, a, you know, a vast number of, of highlights and lowlights. I guess, you know, for me, the GFC will always be, you know, burnt into my psyche. I guess it's the, you know, uh, Mark Burgess, the chairman of, of our fund, uh, you know, says that every investor's psyche is kind of etched in the crisis of their youth. And so the GFC came along when I was in my kind of mid to late 20s, uh, and it was always about liquidity and the lack of liquidity in markets. People thought they owned things that they could sell and be realised for cash, and it just turned out to not be the case. What was Lehman weekend like? Lehman weekend was pretty intense. Um, <laughs> we spent plenty of time in the office that weekend. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that look, that is a low light, obviously, but, um, you know, again, we managed through it. Um, you know, I was working in, in U.S. Treasuries around uh, you know September 11th, and we had to run all of the the Merrill Lynch risk globally out of London. And I was brand new; I was just a kid, uh, and we were printing out spreadsheets that would you know be bigger than the size of this room, trying to work out the net positions. And obviously, systems in those days weren't what uh, are not what systems are today. Uh, and so, just you know, really thrown into the deep end in in every way, and and having to uh, you know to kind of find a way through it. Um, so yeah, there were some, some kind of extraordinary moments, but you know, the great thing about these careers is they're very portable and they allow you to travel the world. And, you know, it's been, I've had a very blessed career up to this point. I've been able to live in, in Tokyo and New York and in London and Sydney now, of course in Melbourne. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic career in that regard that, you know, you get to meet people all over the world, uh, and, and, you know, it's very portable and you can travel with it. And I'd absolutely recommend it to any young person coming through that, you know, wanted to, to look at that. It's a fantastic industry to be in and clearly a very critical industry, uh, you know, for, for time immemorial. Charlie, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on Rules of Investing. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it for today's episode. Some great insights there from Charlie, and hopefully it's answered some of the questions you might have had around bonds and fixed income. If you did enjoy it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And don't forget to sign up to livewiremarkets.com for free access to some of the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. See you next time.